Okay. So, a few weeks ago, taking a walk in the park with a friend down by the river, and I said, hey, that person's playing Pokemon. She's like, what are you talking about? How are you figuring this out? I'm like, she goes, I don't know much about Pokemon, which, you know, makes Pikachu sad. Sorry, now this remote's being weird. She's like, I don't know much about Pokemon or people who play it. And I was like, well, Steve pointed them out to me in Eden Park the other day. And you know, once you see somebody playing Pokemon, then all you do is you keep walking along and you see people playing Pokemon in every park you go to. And she said, oh no, now that you've pointed it out, I'm just gonna keep seeing people playing Pokemon. I said, there's a word for that. You know, that thing when you like learn something and then you see it everywhere? But I was like, I can't remember the name of it. So then I had to Google, what's the name of the thing that means like when you learn something and I do Google this giant phrase and somehow it worked out. It's called the frequency illusion. And as Joe Bluth would say, it's not a trick, it's an illusion. So today, it's not gonna work, I'm struggling. Okay, the frequency illusion is something that happens in your brain and Susan might be able to confirm this. Two things happen. First, there's selective attention. So when you learn something, you are subconsciously thinking, I'm gonna look for that again. You might not be actively thinking about it, but suddenly you're like, oh, well there it is again and again because your brain's thinking about wanting to see it. And then once you see it, you have confirmation bias like, yes, I knew I was part of the cool kids. I am seeing it all the time. I know this cool new information. So hold on to that thought because we're gonna find out a biblical example of frequency illusion. Now, we are coming to the end of our series on First and Second Kings. And if you recall, this has all been about a period of time when God's people were divided into two kingdoms. So last week, Steve talked about how the evil group of Assyrians came through and took Israel, the top, the northern kingdom there. They captured them, took them captive, and basically assimilated them into the Assyrians, took them captive, and there was no more northern kingdom. So today, we're going to look into the southern tribe of Judah, southern kingdom, and one of the bright points in their history before they were also captured. Now, Judah had some good kings and some bad kings. After one of the most amazing kings reigned, his name was Hezekiah, he had a son named Manasseh. And all we know about Manasseh is that he was the most evil king who ruled. That's his great legacy. He had a son, Amon, who was also evil. And finally, Amon had a son named Josiah, and we get a good king again. So we're going to begin by reading. Eric's going to read for us. And we're going to turn to 2 Kings. We'll look at the end of 21 at first. And what page is that? If you have a blue Bible here in the pew. 278. And first we want to look at the last two verses of 21, and or verses 23 and 24, and then 2 Kings 22, 1 and 2, and we'll meet Josiah. All right. As for the other events of Annan's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? He was buried in his grave in the garden of Uzzah, and uh, could, sorry, could you read 23 and 24? Oh, sorry. 
Annan's officials conspired against him and assassinated the king in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon, and they made Josiah, his son, king in his place. And then you could jump to chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Okay. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidiah, daughter of Adoniah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Okay, so Josiah, his father was assassinated, and he became king at only eight years old. I find this really hard to comprehend here. I mean, look at the kids in our church. I mean, I wouldn't trust 10-year-old, my daughter, sorry, Henry, 13 over here. I don't know. I can't imagine you guys running a country, much less an 8-year-old. Now, I was looking for a fun, like, child king photo to be, like, funny, but then I found there was an actual king. This kid became king when he was 3 years old in Africa. Google King Oyo sometime. And so he's now 24 years old and still one of the youngest kings um, in the world. But he became, at age three, so, but this is, I was trying to picture him around eight years old. So imagine this eight-year-old. What do you think a kingdom was like? I feel like it's the plot of some 1990s family movie. Is he pulling pranks on the advisors? Is he falling asleep in cabinet meetings? Is he doodling instead of signing his name to the decrees? What can an eight-year-old know about leading the nation? I just assumed that his advisors probably led for a while. But the sad part is he had no father figure. First of all, it described his grandfather and his dad as being evil. And if, they died, if his dad died when he was eight, then who was leading him? Who was teaching him? Because it says that he began to walk in the way of the Lord at some point in his life. So I have to imagine, you know, his mom and his life the officials that were supposed to guide him, the people of the land who chose him as king. All these people probably had influence on his life. Now, Second Chronicles also gives us the story of Josiah. And they tell a little bit, some other details than we have here in Second Kings. And one of the things they said was when he was 16 years old, that's when he began to seek the Lord. And during that time, he started to realize there were some things going on. And he saw that there was idols left in God's temple, idols to pagan gods. And so he began to clear those out, and he began to take actions in the way of the Lord. And now, when we look back at 2 Kings here in 22, we jump ahead to when Josiah was 26 years old. The temple was needing some renovation, so he began a project, and during that time, something happened. Let's look at verses 8 10 and 11 and 13. If you can jump around to those, Eric. Okay, 22-8. Hilkiah the high priest told Shephan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shephan, who read it. Verse 10. Then Shephan, the court secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Verse 13. Go and inquire of the Lord for me, the people, and all Judah, 
about the instruction in this book that has been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of the book in order to do everything written about us. So as they're renovating the temple, they come upon this book. And scholars think, by the way it's discussed and the content of it, that it was the book of Deuteronomy that we know today. So a part of the Torah has been found. And when the king read it, immediate reaction, devastation. Because he was realizing just how much, I mean, he might have said, okay, my dad was bad, I'm trying to bring people back around to the Lord. But then to read what God's commands really were, suddenly he has this realization of just how far off they've been. So one of the reasons the scholars think that it was Deuteronomy is because Josiah mentions here the Lord's great anger is going to happen to us because we're not obeying his commands. And in Deuteronomy 28, it talks about the curses, the blessings if people obey, and the curses if they don't obey. Now, I just found it interesting because I thought, okay, so he reads this. Why does he suddenly get very nervous thinking, oh, suddenly God is going to bring his wrath upon us? When I feel like, well, for all these years, the people haven't been obeying, so why did he suddenly think that it was going to come to fruition now? But I do think it's noble that he didn't pass it off. He didn't think, oh, well, there's plenty of time for us to change things. He took immediate action. So we're going to look at four different actions that Josiah took. The first action, that he wanted to make sure he understood the Torah correctly. So as we just read, he sent his advisors to inquire of the Lord, and the advisors went to the prophet Huldah. If you could read 2 Kings 22, verses 14 through 17, we'll see what Huldah the prophet told him. Second okay. Kings twenty two fourteen. So Hilkiah the priest and several others went to the prophetess who then hold up wife of Shulam, son of Tikva, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. They spoke with her. She said to them, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Say to the man who sent you to me, This is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods in order to provoke me with all the work of their hands, My wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. So, Huldah confirmed what Josiah had feared when he first saw the Torah. He basically thought, okay, I need to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly, and she confirmed, yes, God was definitely going to punish the people for all the evil deeds that they had done. Now, if you can continue 18 through 20, she had a second part to her message. Verse 18, say this to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says, as the words that you heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard you, 
declares the Lord. Therefore, I will indeed gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place. Then they reported to the king. So the second part of her message was a little bit positive. She basically said that the Lord has heard your cry. He's seen how your heart is humble before him. And so therefore, you won't have to see the punishment of the people. So even though the people were still going to be punished, it's going to happen after Josiah dies so that he doesn't have to see it. It's interesting, though, that the sins were so great from the past that Josiah's leadership, trying to bring them back to God, wasn't enough to redeem all of the people. Perhaps there was still sin going on, even though he was humbling himself before the Lord. He couldn't overcome the past. Now, the second action Josiah took, the first one was to go and clarify, make sure he understood the Torah. The second action was, let's tell the people. I don't just want to read this word. He wanted to give the word to all the people. And if you look in 2 Kings 23, 1 through 3, he gathers all the people together from the greatest, from the least to the greatest. I like that phrase. And he basically read the book of the covenant to them. He said it out loud so that they could be accountable now. And here is where we get the opening illustration, the frequency illusion. I mentioned that when Josiah was younger, he had started to follow the Lord and began clearing out things in the temple. But now that he had his mind open, full details of God's law were before him. He read it all, and suddenly it's like he could see everywhere examples of how God's people were still breaking his commands. Over here were pagan shrines. Over there were horse statues dedicated to the sun. He found living quarters for male and female prostitutes. Asherah poles and altars were all over the place. He might have overlooked some of these things. Maybe it became habit. Oh, yeah, I see pagan worship everywhere. But now, like the frequency illusion, he's learned. His mind has been open. And the more he saw, the more he saw was getting broken, God's word. So the third action that he took was to destroy all of the remaining um, pagan worship, the idols, the altars. We won't read it all, but if you look at verses 4 through 20, there's just an elaborate description. Um, I, I like some of these phrases. It says, he found an Asherah pole. He burned it. He took it out to the, he ground it to powder. He scattered the dust over the graves of the people. He broke down gateways. He desecrated an altar so that no one could sacrifice their son or daughter on it again. He smashed sacred stones, and he covered the sites with human bones. There's just some crazy descriptions if you want to read it sometime. But all these instances, smashing, burning, grinding to dust. He even went into Israel, the northern part, and he just went to town there. He destroyed shrines and items everywhere because I don't think he wanted just any part of God's land, the northern or the southern kingdom, to be associated with pagan worship. So I was surprised that it did use the word desecrated, if you see there, because I think if they are sacrificing children on these altars, what could you do to desecrate it? I mean, that seems pretty horrible in and of itself. But apparently there were some actions that you could do to bring shame even upon pagan altars, and that's what he tried to do. And the fourth, uh, fourth action that Josiah took, Eric, if you could read verses 21 and 22, he found out that there had been something else missing. The people were not celebrating Passover as a nation. 
you can read for us. Okay, 21. The king commanded all the people, keep the Passover of the Lord your God as written in the book of the covenant. No such Passover has ever been kept from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. So that's a short summary. If you, if you looked over in Second Chronicles, they give actual details of just how big, how wonderful of a party this was. Josiah knew how to throw a Passover. Apparently there was 33,000 lambs and goats involved in this, 3,300 cattle, a lot of sacrificing going on. Not going to want to picture the sights and the sounds and the smells there. We'll move on. The major point I see in this is that when Josiah read the book of the law, first of all, he could have just blamed his ancestors. You know, okay, let's look. The people aren't, aren't obeying, but all these kings before me, they were bad, so it's not my fault, right? He could have just been in despair. Like, I have no idea how to turn this thing around. Everybody's already falling apart. I don't know what to do. But I am impressed that he took immediate action. He wasn't paralyzed by the overwhelming situation in front of him of people not worshiping the Lord. He decided to take action. It's like the cartoon light bulb went off over his head. As soon as he read the Torah and fully comprehended it, he was on fire. He had zeal for the God's law. In fact, if we read verse 25, Eric, if you could read it, we can see just how Josiah has had this reputation now for following God's law. Verse 25. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his mind and with all his heart and with all his strength, according to all the law of Moses, and no one like him arose after him. The only other king of Judah who had been praised in this way was his great-grandfather Hezekiah. And they said Hezekiah was unmatched in his faith. And here it says Josiah is unmatched in his zeal for the law, for following God's word. One commentary points out that this is a big deal. Like the way he's described here, you know, we might just pass it off as his compliment. We're glad compared to the other kings, he's good. But Walter Brueggemann is a scholar and said that this indicated his actions were like on par with Moses receiving the commandments from Sinai. You know, we all know how great of a moment that was. But because God's people had turned away, it says this act is nothing less than the recovery of a lost destiny. Like the people were so far from God that Josiah brought them back to their destiny to follow him. So, again, he's, it was a big deal that Josiah had, had followed the Lord in this way. Another picture they say is like bookends, because Josiah's story is here toward the end of 2 Kings, and it's compared back to Solomon at the beginning. And if you remember when we studied back in 1 Kings, Solomon, he had all the potential in the world. His dad, David, was one of the greatest kings who's compared to everyone who followed God after his own heart. And when David was close to passing away, what did he tell Solomon? All you have to do, walk in the Lord's ways, you will be blessed and all the generations will be blessed after you. But what was the one thing Solomon couldn't do? He didn't walk in his ways. He prayed for wisdom, but he was enticed by all the lovely ladies in his life. And so he built altars to all his wives' foreign gods. He was the Oprah of handing out high places. You get a shrine, you get a shrine, you get a shrine. 
And he brought pagan worship into Israel, into Judah, into God's people. The kingdom split, and they followed evil ways. They always had bad habits from there on. So now Josiah is written about as a way of redeeming, as a way of tearing down all the bad that Solomon had led God's people astray. And he was getting back to God's commands. So that feels nice, right? Good story. Happy ending. We can stop there. But it's real life. And real people are flawed. So we're going to see some three sad realities that conclude this story. Eric, could you read 26 and 27? Twenty-six. In spite of that, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath and anger, which burned against Judah because of all the provocations Manasseh had provoked with him. For the Lord had said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, just as I have removed Israel. I will reject the city, Jerusalem, that I have chosen, and the temple about which I said my name will be there. So... Despite all of this, we're reminded at the end of the story here that the punishment was still planned. Josiah was going to be able to escape the punishment, but the people's punishment was still coming. And I I was thinking about that this week, and I was even talking to Steve about it, because I thought, well, what good does this punishment do? Manasseh was the one who was evil. He's already dead. The people who lived under him were likely already dead. So what's going on here? Now, perhaps the punishment stayed in place because it did say that there was, this, there was this evil that still seemed to persist. Even under Josiah's rule, we can read in the book of Jeremiah, who was a prophet during that time also, still talking about God's people struggling. Even when Josiah was giving them great leadership toward the Lord, they weren't always living it out. But it's just the fact that Manasseh's legacy was so evil that the punishment was basically put in his name, that he will forever be known as the one that brought this upon Judah. Now, the second sad reality is that Josiah seems to have died unnecessarily a little bit early. If you could read verse 29 for us, please. During his reign, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, marched up to the king of Assyria at the Euphrates River, King Josiah went to confront him, and at Megiddo, when Nico saw him, he killed him. So again, we get a little bit more detail in Second Chronicles 35. Josiah was uh, age 39 at this point, and apparently the king of Egypt was on his way to fight someone, and Josiah went out to confront him. King Nico said this. What do you want with me, king of Judah? I have no quarrel with you today. I'm on my way to fight another nation, and God has told me to hurry. Do not interfere with God who is with me, or he will destroy you. So it's kind of odd. This pagan king is claiming to have a message from the one true God. I mean, if I was Josiah, I wouldn't believe him either. But Josiah didn't look into it, didn't go back to ask a prophet, hey, could you confirm if this is a really a message from God? No, he disguised himself and went into battle and then ended up dying. And then we find out in verse 22 of Second Chronicles 35, 
But Josiah refused to listen to Nico, to whom God had indeed spoken. So they confirmed it. Basically, God had given this king of Egypt a message for some reason, and Josiah didn't listen to him. So just 13 years after the prophecy had said that he would die before the people went into captivity, Josiah died on the battlefield. And the final reality, the ways of Josiah didn't last. We won't read through here, but the end of chapter 23 and looking at 2 Kings 24, we find out that after Josiah died, his son was on the throne for three months and something happened to him. Then a second son got on the throne, a grandson, and then back to another of Josiah's sons. And all four of them were described as doing evil in the Lord's sight. How is this great man who followed God's law, what happened to his kids? Did Josiah not teach them well? Did they just turn away for political reasons of the time? We don't know the full picture, but it's just sad to think, okay, there was this great man, and still the people who followed him, his own family, didn't live up to God's law. Okay, good story for the day. You can go out and enjoy your week now. Well, I just wanted to show a few lessons that I gained from this that I feel like we can all gain from the story today. First, your investment makes a difference. When Josiah became king at age eight, who taught him? Who helped him follow the way of the Lord? The people in his life. And it was probably his mom and the community around him. So, specific time here. When Kendra asks you guys to volunteer in the nursery or teach the kids, see that as an important role. Seriously, when you make a difference in your kids' lives and nieces and nephews' lives and the kids here at Echo Church, when you read a Bible story or sing a Jesus song, just by hanging out and mentoring, you make a difference. You're passing along the faith to the next generation. And this leaves a positive legacy. Manasseh is known for the evil. Josiah is known for following God's word. You're going to leave a legacy behind, and you're going to affect younger generations. So recognize that's important. The second lesson is we can take action starting today. We noted that earlier that Josiah did not get paralyzed by the evil that he saw before him. Sometimes we look around in our lives and we see our communities. Maybe you see it in your own families. You look at our country and you wonder, what's going on? All the people who've come before us have made choices that I don't agree with. So we're at the time now where we can take action. We can make a difference. We can live out our faith and start to make changes in all these areas. We can, as Josiah did, we have the ability to see injustices going on and take effect. And third, I wanted to note that God's word is for us. Let's rededicate ourselves to it. Josiah was good but imperfect. The hero of this story is God's word. Josiah's heart changed when he read the Torah. And the people began a revival and began to change when he read it out loud to them. It was about God's word going out. You can also see this in the book of Nehemiah. There was a time when God's word was read over the land in front of all the people and hearts were changed. Jesus quoted scripture and God's word was powerful to him to combat temptation. Hebrews 4.12 says, 
for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word is more than a book. And when it is read and spoken and taught, we're promised something will happen. My word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I love that. God's saying all we have to do is read his word, speak his word, share his word. He's going to do the work. He lives and moves through us and through his word. I'm guilty of not valuing the Bible at times. I grew up in church and sometimes I feel like I've heard it all before. I edit articles on a weekly basis for my job where people quote the Bible. I'm full of the Bible. So it's easy to take it for granted or think that I've got it all covered. Sometimes I just read my favorite parts. I don't want to read all the parts. But when I dig in, like this week, just reading this story, if I truly give it time, God does move if I will listen. His spirit moves in our hearts when we read or sing or hear scripture. God's word is from all is for all of us, from the least to the greatest. It's written to guide, challenge, and convict, to inform, uplift, and give hope. So my hope for you is that you'll have a little bit of frequency illusion in your life this week. Maybe something that you heard today will come up and keep coming to your mind, and that God will use it to get your attention and communicate to your heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, even in stories that are interesting and curious. We thank you that we can read about your people, and we can learn from their actions, from the positive, and we can learn from the negative choices they made. But we thank you that your word is still active in our lives, and that your spirit moves in our hearts when we try to learn about you and seek you and follow you. And we pray this week that we might learn something new and follow after you in a new way, that we might share your love in our communities and with the people around us. We thank you for being present today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.